What's so funny? Asked the psychiatrist. Arthur replied, I'm just thinking of a joke. The psychiatrist asked, Do you want to tell it to me? Arthur said, eh, You wouldn't get it. Recognize this quotes movie? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. Additionally, joining us as guests this week are... Ragnar. And Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Ragnar has joined us for nine episodes, including A Quiet Place, Parasite, and Chinatown. Kevin has joined us for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and our Talking Trivia Trivia series. Ragnar and Kevin still conveniently like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today we are finishing our exploration of Batman and Joker movies by going back to 2019. Brexit is not only trending on Twitter, but it is trending in all of Europe. The USA and China continue their trade war, the president is impeached for the first time this term, and none of us are aware of what is right around the corner in the new year. During all of this, Todd Phillips' movie Joker was released in theaters alongside Downton Abbey, the movie, Abominable, Rambo, Last Blood, and The Adams Family. Nick will be quizzing us today. Nick, what is Joker all about? This is a fairly dark tale of the struggles Arthur Fleck is having with not only himself, but surviving in society as a whole. It does focus somewhat on his mental illness issues and really is more of a skin within the Batman universe than a true Batman or Joker story. And I'll leave the rest of it for the episode because I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. Tom, if you only had one word to describe Joker, what would it be? Overwrought. Ragnar? Unreliable. Kevin? Horrifying. And my word would be... <laughs> it's time for question one. Arthur Fleck is taking how many medications? Oh, locked in. Locked in. Closest without going over. Locked in. Ragnar, start us up. Seven. Kevin. I had seven as well. Tom. <laughs> I, I also had seven, honest to God. <laughs> okay, everyone's getting the points. It was seven. Uh, I kind of mentioned this, and it's the first thing that comes to mind, I think, to anyone who watches this film, but the topic of mental illness. Take it away, Tom. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the mental illness is interesting. So th this influence is clearly Taxi Driver, right? It looks like Taxi Driver. It's alluding to Taxi Driver in many ways, as, as well as other Scorsese films. But I think the most prominent is Taxi Driver. Travis Bickle, our, our main character in Taxi Driver, really doesn't have a 
diagnosable mental illness. It's actually kind of hard to identify. And the movie takes no, makes no effort to do so. In this film, our character seems to, um, he, he seems to have a particular type of mental illness or a collection of them. However, it isn't so much that they're, um, that they're kind of mysterious or unknowable the way they are in Taxi Driver. Here it is, there isn't any institutional support to help a, a person with these conditions survive or prosper in the world, right? And so the chaos of the world, the chaos of somebody with, with mental health issues is that this world is not prepared to help them. It's a world that doesn't raise people and that, that speaks to these issues of fatherhood that are both um, biologically abandoned as well as institutionally abandoned. And I think the mental health issues reveal that in the picture. Of note, the first watch I had of this film was before I actually saw Taxi Driver. So it was kind of new to me. And I wonder if that influenced my appreciation for this film. Now seeing both, I see a lot of the connections that Tom is talking about. Yeah, the connection to Taxi Driver is, you know, impossible to ignore, as is the one to King of Comedy, also by Scorsese, which is more of the uh, talk show, show business side of this movie. Uh, but, you know, the, the mental health angle, it's very interesting because the point is he is not diagnosed with anything. I think that's key. Um, and maybe um, what's it, Travis in, in uh, Taxi Driver, is that anything? I don't know. Travis Spickle, yeah. Right. I don't know if he's diagnosed with anything either. And I think that's on purpose because they don't want to specifically say a, a person with, you know, XYZ disease or, or disorder or what have you um, cannot make it. It's just more like someone that for whatever reason doesn't feel like they belong or they're, they're, they're able to connect with people in a city full of people. Um, and how they just bury that feeling with more pills and more pills and more pills and more pills. Um, and then when they become reliant on those pills, when they become addicted, it gets taken away from them because of some tax cuts or what have you. So I feel like this might be, in terms of a political commentary, the weakest part of the film, because I feel like it's set up. I, I see the setup but I don't hear the punchline. Um, the only punchline I get is that due to his illnesses, due to his craziness, he becomes an unreliable narrator, um, which is great. And I enjoy the unreliable narrator aspect of this movie, but I don't see how that's a statement to anything that he was building up in the first half of the movie. So I do think that's the weakest part of the film. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting um... In the beginning of the movie, I think he's with the uh, social worker and she alludes to why he's there. And, you know, he, he sort of sidesteps that question and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they ever really come back to it. Um, they just kind of say, he's here, uh, you know, deal with that. He, it could be, could be any number of reasons why he's here, um, but he's here and he's being forced to be here. That's what we know. The one thing that came up in that conversation, Kevin, was that he was already, it sounded like he was already committed and released. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so that's why, why he had to be there. 
But yeah, and I mean, maybe I'm projecting, um, you know, how how our society works onto this fictional society, but um, you know, people aren't involuntarily committed very often in in our society. It, it takes <laughs> it it takes quite a bit to get someone to to um, to receive treatment against their will, and I think. I think that that's clearly what has happened here. I, I don't think that he, you know, had some crisis and said, "Hey, guys, I need help." Uh, I that didn't didn't seem like what was going on. Um, but I, I think that kind of speaks to maybe not making so much of a commentary on those issues um, and just saying, "Hey, if so, if someone were to find themselves in this situation, here's what could happen," and make of that what you will. I feel like we might be hearing uh, your prequel in the guest question coming up later. <laughs> How do you get committed? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> Play those cards close, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do think that in both cases, in this and in Taxi Driver, they are seeking to push the energy in an exogenous direction, away from the the kind of biological malfunctions of the individual and towards the social malfunctions of the society in which the individual find him, finds himself. Um, in both cases, in New York and Taxi Driver and Gotham in this film, it's the city that is far more manic and crazy than the individual inside the city, right? And, and the individual ends up becoming a reflection of the society um, in, in which he inhabits. In the case of Travis Bickle, he becomes an unlikely hero, despite the fact that his behavior is entirely irrational and just kind of misinterpreted as heroic. In, in the case of the Joker, you know, he becomes kind of a populist hero, due really, again, almost kind of accidental. He was just sort of defending himself against the, the, the subway Wall Street people. Um, and so, again, there is this uh, idea of a manic society that is far crazier than whatever disorder either Joker or Bickle has. Um, about the manic city, you know, it was only on the second time, because the first time I saw it, I, I thought the manic city side of it was pretty heavy, heavy handed at some point. And now seeing it the second time. And again, going back to the unreliable aspect of his narration or of what we're watching, maybe it's just his perception of the city is so dark and, you know, evil and rude. And he's the nice one and he's the good guy. Um, so I think it is the, the city's condition is amplified because of the perspective we're watching it from that I didn't really see that before, before I took it as fact rather than his perspective. That's just something I thought about in the second viewing. It's time for question two. What is the song the finance bro from Wayne Investment sings in the train? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay, Ragnar, start us up. Send in the clowns. Kevin? Send in the clowns. All right, send in the clouds. Tom, I was gonna say, Tom, who are you sending in? Okay, <laughs> again, we got we got a full sweep here. It's all good. It's only round one, one point each. So you know, they could be a little a little easier. Send in the pantaloons. Send in the breaking point of Arthur Fleck. So let's oh. talk about that. <laughs> what a transition. Uh, <laughs> well, it's it's. I mean, one thing is, I think we already mentioned this. Is it's accidental. 
right? It's him in an act of just basic normal um, self-defense. Somebody's kicking him and, and he responds. And this becomes meaningful in a way that he didn't intend it. It's, it's not an intentional action until the third person, right? The I was going to say, who, it becomes intentional. <laughs> it becomes very intentional. Very <laughs> yeah, when he chases that person out of it. And so it's, um, and I think the movie kind of leads us to think that this is something that is is bound to happen, considering the, the sort of populist position the film takes, it imagines that eventually someone from the lower orders is going to bite back against someone from the higher orders. And that Joker happens to be the person who does this um, in part because he, he does it in the most violent way, but also because he, he sort of has a, um, has a, an icon he's able to embody as well, the, the clown, the clown with the fangs, as we see in the newspaper. And so he becomes both the person who's willing to be violent enough to do it, as well as the meme that can pass from that that event into uh, kind of a, a tropic um, dispersion of this image. Yeah, I, I think the only difference between when he got beat up by the kids with the signs and when he gets beat up by the wall street folks are uh, that he happens to be armed um so I, I think it's i think it's worth mentioning that yeah I, I guess you could call this his breaking point but he would have had several breaking points if not for circumstance before that yeah i like what kevin said i would agree with that you know the movie at first glance that subway scene is his breaking point but he broke a long time ago, um, you know, as you can see when he was talking to the social worker, there's an instant of a flashback where he's in involuntary confinement and he's smashing his face on a, on a window. Uh, that guy was broken. The only thing he needed is a gun and a little push. And I think if we stick to the confines of the movie, I think the actual breaking point is when um, his medicine, his medication is taken away from him. Um, once, uh, he is told that the program is cut and that he won't be receiving any more pills and, you know, basically told that the government does not care about him. That's when the movie really takes off and all these nearly fantastical events start happening. Um, you know, the girl, you know, how he just charms this girl all of a sudden. And then you just, how much of it is in his head? You know, did he even... Was he even the, the killer of those uh, three people? Um, so I think he, he broke when the medication stopped coming. I like the line where he says, I think it's when the two people come to uh, check up on him, which really they had ulterior motives, I think. But he's like, yeah, I stopped taking my pills. I feel much better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right before Very he right. kills the one guy in a pretty <laughs> gruesome fashion. Yeah. Okay. At the end of round one, everyone is tied at two points all. We'll be back for round two after a message from one of our valued sponsors. Have an idea for an ad? Is it a fake product? We'll air it. Send us an audio clip of your fake ad, and after it goes through our rigorous and strict reviewing process, we'll fit it into an episode. Don't have an idea for an ad? Make one anyway and send it to fakeads at talkingpicturestrivia.com or call 201-467-8679 and leave a voicemail of your ad. 
You'd sound really good on radio. This ad requesting fake ads is a real ad requesting you to send us fake ads. Seriously, send us your fake ads. And we're back. We're at the key point of our episode where we ask the guests a critical question. This goes to both of you. If you could write your own sequel for Joker, what would be the plot? I was curious to see if there was going to be a sequel. And I started looking up, you know, uh, Joker sequel. And I saw that uh, Willem Dafoe had a pretty interesting idea where, uh, I don't know if he was proposing that, that he be the guy or, or whatever, but uh, he proposed, what if somebody tries to be like a Joker copycat? And how would, uh, how would Joker take that? And how would they end up being rivals and so on and so forth? I think that would be pretty cool. Um, either that or a Penguin backstory. I, I think uh, the last time we saw Penguin, it was... Danny DeVito, and it was pretty nonsensical. Um, I'd like to see at least an attempt to get that right. Nonsensical or amazing? He's going to be in the new movie. <laughs> That's right. He's in the Batman. He's in the Batman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm a big fan of this movie. You know, Regardless of all the criticisms I may have, I think it's a very good movie. Um, so I want to say that because because what I'm going to say next might be contradictory. I think a sequel is a terrible idea for this movie. Um, not only am I a fan of this movie, but I'm also a fan of Batman and I have tons of comics and everything. So I say this with a open, a big heart towards Batman. I think all the, the Batman stuff is the weakest part of this movie. This movie could take all that Batman stuff away and it could just be this kind of character study and be probably even better um so the the movie has a very open-ended ending and for there to be a sequel means that there has to be a definitive ending so that they have a concrete place to start to move forward uh and i think that will take away a little bit of the magic of the ending of this movie that's why i'm against it so if it must be done, you know, if the movie studios must bring in a ton of money and drop it on my lawn, then I think it should be that, you know, Bruce Wayne is now Batman and old man Joker has, you know, has a kingdom of disassociate, uh, you know, people who don't feel like they belong to society. Gotham is rotting and, uh, you know, he's the king of this rotten city and Batman is trying to save the city. So some you know straightforward comic book movie you know something i'm not too interested in a sequel to this movie that's why i don't have a very definitive answer for that i think i'm in your camp where i'm anti-sequel some movies are meant to be self-contained and again even when i was introducing this film i really said it was a skin within this universe telling a story where you could probably have taken it off like you said or replaced it with another universe and still had a similar story yep but if we had to, either one of these ones sound fun. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fun. It will be fun. But it's, it, it, it makes as much sense as making a sequel to Taxi Driver. I, I do think it's worth pointing out. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I always thought of Joker and Batman as somewhat, um, somewhat contemporaneous with each other. And it's clear that that's not the case here. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe we could work in a decent sequel where there's a passing of the torch from Joker to Joker. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good one. So I like that. One of our friends, uh, he was on this show a lot. His name is Chris has a theory that none of this movie actually happened. I know he's not alone with this. There are others that have that. And the only thing that really happens is the final sequence where they allude to him killing the person in the asylum. So that's another interpretation. And, you know, there could be a whole nother story. Or I like in the earlier questions, Kevin got this idea for a prequel of how he got committed the first time. Or maybe mm -hmm. that was the first time he was committed and never left. Oh man, I think I just made my movie. The, the problem with this idea of like it's all in your head is that you need a you need a distinguished space when it's outside of his head. Otherwise, nothing matters. That's the problem. You the, the stakes just kind of fall. That was your back. problem with the film, right? Because that was your interpretation. <laughs> well, no, no, no. That's my problem with that interpretation. Uh, you know, with like Caligari, like the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from an earlier episode, there's clearly a realistic time, a dream time, and a realistic time again. The film tells us this. It's when would be the dream time and when would be the realistic time with Joker? But I mean, that's clearly intentional, right? I it's mean, all a blur. What is real? What is from his perspective? Again, we said the, uh, what's the term? Unreliable narrator. <laughs> right. And when he's unreliable, we end up knowing that. It's mostly through the uh, ZZ Betts. What's her name? The, 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 the female companion. He yeah, has. but we don't know if it goes beyond that. That's what we're talking right. about. Like, yeah. Is that the only, that's the only uh, definitive I, time we know for sure. Mm -hmm. That he's yeah. making it all up in his mind, the reveal. Um, but, I, but what do you lose if everything is up for up for questioning? Right, you lose the stakes of the film. So I, I think I, I always have I kind of push back against that interpretation that it's it's maybe everything in his head is, except the last sequence because otherwise, you know, you you just took us on a ride that really wasn't happening. I 100% agree with you, Tom. I, 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 I want that not to be the case because I don't want to have wasted two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, of my life. exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so especially if it was a fun ride, let's, let's make it count for something. Mm -hmm. um, so while I don't think everything in the movie, I don't think everything in the movie happened the way it happened for real or for, from multiple perspectives, but I think that's how he interpreted um, you know, the, the woman was with him those times when she was actually not. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I really hope that they don't go the route of it was all in his <laughs> mind, except for the end, because I really don't want to waste like, four hours and 30 minutes. <laughs> I've watched this movie twice. Yeah, fair. All I have to say is, why so serious? Oh, wait, that's a different portrayal of Joker. <laughs> mm. What else does Robert De Niro have in common with this movie is that he was... Uh, uh, Walking Phoenix and Heath Ledger, Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando are the only people to win Oscars for playing the same role, right? Oh. Now there's actual trivia within yeah. Talking Pictures trivia. <laughs> the first time for everything. It's time for question three. The top two questions for social workers, specifically Arthur's one, are... I told you it's going to get harder in round two. There's a specific scene that references this you oh. will get one point per each one question yeah i think i could lock in i'll lock in just for the sake of uh of, mm -hmm. of being locked in yeah. here so two questions that the social worker asks 
No, not necessarily. <laughs> the top two questions for social workers, specifically Arthur's one, are, there's a scene where he's talking with the social worker. Does he say for, like for social workers or by social workers? Uh, you can say by. Things that they say. There's two things they always say. Now I'm really laying it out there. I don't want to give any more. I, I, I'm almost positive I definitely have one. I'm positive I don't have any, but I'll lock in. <laughs> That's you, what Kevin? round two is all about. Do you, do you have a preview of how many you know? <laughs> well, you're going to know right now because he was last. Did you right, lock in? I'm, I'm la I locked in, yeah. I'm last. So start us up. Well, you know, um, there Let's is the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> how have you been? And... Uh, did you keep up your journal? Good questions, Kevin. So I, re I remember the scene very clearly. You know, he says, you don't really listen. All you do is ask the same two questions every time I'm here. Um, and I believe one of them is, how are you feeling today? And the other one, I'm much less sure of. Um, I'll go with, uh, do we need to adjust your medication? Tom. I had, how are you feeling today? And are you having any negative thoughts? Okay. Tom is going to get one point. What was the other one? And it was how negative is, thought. Yeah. Negative it's, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. negative. He goes, they always say, how's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? He's like, I only have negative thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember negative thoughts because he <laughs> says I only have negative thoughts. So he compares yeah, life yeah. to two things. And one of them is he thought his life was a tragedy or life is a tragedy. I want to really focus on that element within this film. Is it a tragedy? I mean, if you're looking at the classic story, like tragedy, comedy, and let's say romance, which is, you know, like trying to tragic comedy, what would this movie classify as? Well, he has an epiphany later that it's not a tragedy, but we do mm -hmm. go through a certain sequence of events in his life that, are leading us in that direction until he has a certain epiphany. But I was just trying to see if we could bring those elements in and we yeah. can disagree. <laughs> I, I would say the movie plays as an ironic comedy. It ends with this person in a, in a happy position. Um, he's alive, he's happy. He seems to have achieved something. Ironic because his, his achievement is obviously uh, destructive and isolating. Um, Which is true, but he does have a lot of tragic things happen within his life. Right, but would the movie itself be, if you were to look at a movie being a, a romance or something between tragedy and comedy, a tragedy or a comedy, what would you say this movie is? No, we're not saying the movie. We're saying his depiction of life as he knows it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, sure. so, I, I just so, don't want to go down uh, genres with this. Well, the, the, movie is, in the movie is absolutely set up to be a tragedy up until mm -hmm. a certain point, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, I think that's maybe what Nick is alluding to is, you know, he sets it up to be this, uh, you know, he's gonna go on this TV show and kill himself. And, mm -hmm. you know, if that were the ending of the movie, I think there's a pretty good case for it being a tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think up until the point where he is with his mother and he says, you know, it's not actually a tragedy, it's a comedy. And he, and he uh, you know, I think that's when he turns and, and goes, okay, uh, 
this isn't going to be how it ends. This isn't mm-hmm. going to be how the how this story goes. It's not a tragedy. I guess uh, speaking directly to Nick's question from from Arthur's perspective, um, I'm not too knowledgeable about the exact definition of tragedy and comedy in terms of genres and everything. But from Arthur's perspective, I think up until a certain point, he felt his life was a, a tragedy because he felt everything was done to him that everybody was mean to him and that he had no control over his life and where it's going. So it's sad because he's just on this river of tragedy. Um, and then at a certain point when, you know, starts when he gets the gun and then when the violence really ramps up, uh, probably in the, in the subway when he kills those three people and he likes it, um, that's when he realizes, wait a minute, I do have control. I can decide what happens. And I think, and I think that's when it kind of turns into a comedy for him. And I think even with his plan of shooting himself on, on TV, that was, that was the punchline for him. That was his punchline. So I think even then he, he had already turned it into a comedy in his mind. And then I think it was a last minute change where he decided to uh, not kill himself. The beginning of the tragedy goes way back too. Because once he finds out about how crazy his mother was, he was abused by her boyfriend and they found him handcuffed to the radiator or something. Now, if we wonder why he got committed the first time, he didn't exactly have the strongest upbringing and he was adopted too. So he had all these different things, hearing that he might be a Wayne, you know, and, and like just all this crazy nonsense. Uh, he never was in control. But I think you guys hit the nail on the head with saying that the, the, the switch flips when he starts taking the control, when he starts making decisions versus having everything happen to him. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the, the embracing of agency is when it becomes um, a, a livable life for him. For sure. That's, that's when he starts having fun, I guess, to put it mm-hmm. in, a, in a crass way. Mm-hmm. We have a very close game here. Mm. Tom is in the lead with three points, and Ragnar and Kevin are right behind with two points. Going into our last question here. It's time for question four. What is the ending catchphrase of Murray Franklin's show? Locked in. Locked in. No pressure, Tom. Episodes on the line here. <laughs> yeah, Lord, I I don't think I remember. Um, lock in. Stars up, Tom. Uh, I was gonna say, uh, good night and keep laughing. It's actually here's Johnny. No, <laughs> uh, I you believe- just totally made that up. I, I believe it's Ragnar. Did I get yeah. that right? I think Kevin was quick on this, on the buzzer on this one. Yeah. He definitely knows what it is. I think I know what it is. But then I'm just wondering, is that just the song that was playing in the background? Anyways, the answer is, uh, that's life. Kevin. That's life. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have a two-way tie. Yeah. Uh... But Tom, the way we always play this is everyone's in it for bonus round, and that's a three mm-hmm. question, a three point question. So it still is not impossible. 
Mm-hmm. So yes, I, I, the, the line that's life. This is when I started thinking of the next phase of Arthur Fleck's life, where he starts to think life is a comedy. And I thought that was kind of very fitting that the catchphrase for Murray's show is that's life where he takes a bullet in the head. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. a dark comedy, but a comedy nonetheless. Yeah. I like that line because it's kind of in the vein of um, like a, this too shall pass, right? Like it, Mm -hmm. if, if you're happy, Mm -hmm. it makes you sad. If you're sad, it makes you happy. It it can, it can go either way. That's life. Oh, that's, you know, wonderful. That's life. Life is awesome. Or that's life, you know, better luck next time. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's transient. It, it, it itself doesn't matter. <laughs> Much like this movie, right, Tom? <laughs> well, I think this movie mattered. It made a bucket of money, didn't it? Well, for sure, yeah. Yeah. It didn't matter to me, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important because by the end of the movie, once he turns his life into a comedy, it's just about kind of like rolling with the punches. He just, whatever happens, he accepts it and, and reacts to it um, to the point where I, I, I don't know why I'm getting this impression. I don't remember if this is what he says, but I still believe that pretty much right up until he went on, he was going to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And then he maybe saw uh, Murray make fun of him one last time. And he said, you know, forget it. I'm going to, I'm going to embrace this uh, movement that I inadvertently started. And I don't really care about, but I'm going to embrace it. Um, and I'm going to lash out. Um, and so w- the point is that's life is just kind of like rolling with the punches, you know, when it's, you know, knowing that this too shall pass is still change. So he said, don't take anything too seriously because that's life. And so he confesses on, on air. He kills he goes up to the camera. He doesn't care. That's life. So I think it kind of summarizes who he has become at the end. I think he is genuinely pretty happy at the end. He seems like he is is uh, is like in life, and you know, obviously that's not such a great thing for the people around him. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that speaks to the to the it turning into a comedy thing. Is, is like things turned out really well for him. I feel like he's gonna. <laughs> I feel like he's gonna. You know live his live his life enjoy it and then and then at the end look back and say hey that was fun you know and you know obviously that's uh there's a lot to be said and why that's a a bad thing for society but uh certainly from his perspective it's it's a lot of fun and it's a comedy for sure at that point Mm. yeah it's it's interesting his happy life is living in an arkham mental hospital um, harming people more or less at his discretion um, because he doesn't feel anything for anyone, right? That, that's what we find out is that he just doesn't have an, an empathetic ability. And so, yeah, having the kind of freedom to harm people, that's what, <laughs> that's what makes his life worth living. Um, but it's also kind of combined. There, there is this kind of nihilistic strain, right? Because he does not embrace the populism he inspires. He specifically says that. I'm political in no way. Um, so he, he doesn't embrace that, even though when they they free him inexplicably, because how would they know he was in that car? But whatever. Um, when they, they do free him, he does this kind of dance. He does 
sort of tip his hat to them. So there's this odd kind of combination of, of populism and also nihilism, which aren't necessarily compatible. But um, I think as long as he's creating chaos, he's happy. I think that's end up being what it is. And, and he got what he was, I mean, he doesn't care about the movement. I, I think you're absolutely right. But he does care that he finally has a loving audience mm-hmm. um, that he stumbled into. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what he's been dreaming about his whole life. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. he jumps at the occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing, just just that, you know, like I, I totally agree. He doesn't care about, about the movement. He doesn't care about, I, I think he embraces it to the extent that he likes to see people that he deems as bad get what they deserve in his mind. But beyond that, he's not invested in the movement. But, you know, like, like Ragnar said, he is, he is hook, line, and sinker for this adoring crowd, for sure. It's time for a bonus question. What movie is displayed on the theater marquee in Gotham? Locked in. Locked in. Wait, which, which one? There's two. Do you want me to tell you both of them? The <laughs> one the that's the then? answer. <laughs> yeah. You might have me stumped, actually. I'll lock in for sure. Wait, what was the question again? <laughs> what movie is displayed on the theater marquee in Gotham? Okay. Yeah. Um, I already locked in. I was just double-checking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, Kevin, start us up. Um, I I know exactly. I'm picturing the shot in my head, but the marquee is blank in my head. So I'm going to go with uh, Kevin loses the musical. Okay, <laughs> I love that movie. Okay, so, so there's two marquees. There's one where Joker gets where he's in the police car and gets hit. Um, that's Ace in the Hole. It's a 1950s movie whose title was The Big Carnival. That was like its subtitle. So there you go. The other movie is the movie that they come out of, the Waynes come out of, which is Zorro the Gay Blade, which I looked up, which couldn't have been The Mask of Zorro, which I think is the original movie they came out of in the the comic books, because Zorro the Gay Blade came out in 1981. So those are the two movies on Marquis. First of all, if anyone listening to this needs to go watch Ace in the Hole, it's a fantastic movie. Um, I... I didn't realize marquee and, you know, thinking of the, uh, the physical marquee, I was just thinking about what was the big movie that everybody in Gotham went to go see. Um, and that was modern times, um, where they were projecting oh, it and he goes yeah, to see Thomas Wayne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was also, yeah. Also a great, a great, great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, uh, Carnival is Arthur's clown name. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's why that's, I think oh, they put it there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I, I think Ace in the Hole was That's the, a good Easter egg. Yeah, because Guzuro the Gay Blade is 1981, which is, I guess, the presumptive year of this film. But like um, Ace in the Hole, I'm like, this is a 50s movie. Why is it going on now? And I, I yeah. looked it up and was like, oh, that's why. <laughs> it's, a, it's a reference. Oh, there's actually a bunch more. So the, the movie theater where the Waynes are murdered, there's actually a few movies on the marquee. I didn't realize that now that I'm looking yeah. it up. I think one's probably Modern Times. No, Modern Times is not on that marquee. It's on the uh, other one. It's probably. So congratulations, Tom. Um, you did get there. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
coming back from behind here actually to mm. sweep in and get the episode. So congrats. Thank you. Yay. It, it seems somewhat unfair. It's kind of like the overtime rules in the NFL where whoever scores first wins. It, well, but, if one of them chose to get the answer wrong, they could have secured a victory for the other. <laughs> for someone that didn't like this movie, he sure was paying a lot of attention to it. Well, you, you always got to do your homework and, you know. This is, this is Nick and House all over again. Oh, yeah, and I'm I'm definitely proposing a rule change wherein only the people who are tied with the highest score. Uh, yes, move on that's what I time. said last time. Nope, <laughs> nope. <laughs> you can't. You got to win it fair and square. Hmm. I'll give you another bonus question for zero points. So here we go. All right. All right. Which probably should have been the question. Well, depending hmm. on how obvious it is, because the other one, I don't know, for some reason wasn't as straightforward as I I thought it would have been. What is the name of the facility that they send Arthur Fleck to? I, I thought it was Arkham Asylum, uh, not Asylum, Arkham Hospital? Or is that wrong? It's Anybody three words. Else? It's, it's oh. Arkham, Arkham something hospital. Ragnar? Memorial? Arkham Looney Bin? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what it is. There you go. It was actually in chiseled in marble. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was... Arkham State Hospital. So, oh, there you I go. actually oh. use you know where that is? Yeah. That is the Navy Yard on 59th Street in Brooklyn. I used to live a few blocks from there. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've been I've run past that building many a time. Yeah. Um sure. my, my old home. Past that building, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we believe you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm still there. <laughs> this, this, is, I was gonna say, this is all from Tom's perspective. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This whole episode. I'm on a podcast. Been... I'm on a podcast. <laughs> I finally won. Tom has killed us the all many times. The movies in my mind are real. Yeah. The movies mm-hmm. in my mind are real. <laughs> oh. By the oh, end, we're all like, you're right, Tom. This movie did suck. <laughs> No, only Tom would have contrarians in his mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I said I loved it, and Tom shot me in the head. That's <laughs> oh Lord, yeah. Uh. It's time for movie rent. Oh, I think I gave my my view <laughs> on this film quite prominently. I, I'd like to hear what uh, what people who like like what guys what what attracted you to this? Oh, I'm sorry, Ragnar. It looks like you had something to say. Well, I, I just want to say, like, we spent most of this time talking about um, the philosophy behind the movie, and obviously that's super important. Uh, but I also want to give some time to, like, just a straight up execution of the film. Um, I just feel there were some really phenomenal images created in this movie. I'm thinking in particular of the scene where his two uh, friends that was i did air quotations which obviously no one saw because this is audio only but where his two friends from work come to visit him um and then he kills one of them pretty right off the bat and yeah, he has this painted face with blood splattered on him and his other friend who's uh short is just like terrified in the corner and he's trying to jump for the lock and it's just a terrifying scene that I thought was filmed very well. Um, Same with him coming into uh, his imaginary girlfriend's apartment. And he's just like, he has this horrifying look. And it's just, I thought the movie did some, executed some really good imagery. And I'm always down for that. Even when he was all painted up as Joker, 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't a clean look. You, you could no. like, sm- yeah. like, like smell the grease on his hair. And uh, by the way, I thought he didn't look like the actor, like Joaquin Phoenix. I didn't think he looked like himself when he had all that makeup on. It was yeah. actually kind of interesting to me how that makeup made him look a little different. But I, I liked that. It was like an imperfect clown, just scraggly and dirty and, and somehow he still pulled it off with all his fancy dance moves and yeah. lightened up the mood. I, th- I think the imperfect clown has has been there since the the beginnings of Joker, right? Like he's always been kind of this like, yeah, I guess he's a clown, but like, what's the deal with even in like the original uh, '60s Batman? It was like, what's the deal with that mustache under his makeup, you know? <laughs> and then like, you know, in like the um, in the Michael Keaton Batman, like. Clearly, he's not not really a clown at all, except for when he decides after his horrible transformation that he wants to be sort of clownish. So I, I think that that uh, that imperfect clown or that sort of uh, psycho clown has always been always been a part of it. I, yeah, I, mean, I, I think like it was cut. executed pretty well here. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, a clown's a, a chaotic thing, right? It's like laughter. It's sort of a chaotic force. It's it's something that you can't can't really control and and the clown figure is somebody who kind of comes in and disrupts stability right it you know clowning around is sort of in a disruption of dis, of stability and that's you know what any kind of what the joker is in in batman if the joker has a backstory or doesn't um like the heath ledger version versus this version you know uh in, in either case it's it's a force of disruption and batman is this kind of stabilizer um which is i think more clear in the nolan films than anywhere else but he's sort of supposed to keep everything okay and keep the dark forces at bay so that society can kind of work peacefully and and a clown is someone who disrupts that who interrupts or inverts the the normal social normal social order um and joker certainly does that in this picture uh, speaking of images i thought um you know, as as much as the uh, uh, Bruce Wayne's parents getting murdered thing seemed really shoehorned in there, I really appreciated the uh, the pearls flying image there. That was a nice callback to the uh, yeah the the original Batman. I thought that was pretty. You gotta cool. have that for sure. Yeah. I, well, I was a little bit disappointed you didn't say ever dance with the devil in a pale moonlight. <laughs> <laughs> That's just something I used to. Say. <laughs> best line ever uh, yeah something yeah 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 it's uh, yeah so i just think it's a it's a well done movie maybe not all its statements land or its philosophical points are expressed correctly but i'm always down for a well choreographed uh, wells well choreographed and good cinematography in a movie you don't see the that very often so i, I on a technical level i think it's it's a phenomenal film and, and that's why I'm drawn to it. So. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I certainly feel that. Can I, can I ask you guys, what do you think of like the whole father plot? I, I thought it was cool that you, uh, you don't know at the end. And I think, I think your ability to maybe know ends with um, both Thomas Wayne and um, Arthur's mother dying. I, I think mm-hmm. that's, it's kind of cool that they decided not to, give you any clarity on that 
I think I had a different perspective. I, I thought I had clarity. Yeah, what do you think? We saw that he was adopted, but you're saying that maybe so you're saying his, it could have still been so his, a cover-up? His, his mom was being, um, I guess you would call it interrogated in, in the mental hospital. And she said, no, he's, Thomas, Thomas fabricated all those documents to try to hide what really happened. That's what I was thinking when you went down that, that that was your thought process. I actually, I thought it was like just nonsense from a crazy woman, but I could see how you have that interpretation that he's so powerful because the powerful yeah. and rich can get away with anything. So they exactly. didn't have that vibe think, in the film. I, I, I didn't catch it like that, but that's I, interesting. I think you're meant to sort of lean towards, yeah, probably not. But I think you're also meant to have that like, well, it's not impossible. I could see a world where maybe it would happen, especially in a, in a fictional universe like this. Like that seems maybe. And I think keeping that, keeping that balance of like, I'm 90% sure it's not true, but 10%, I don't know. I think, I think that's the right balance moving forward. Even when we're introduced to him in this film, he's not this like, pious guy like even his interaction with him in that bathroom i mean he slugs him like that's like his first go-to <laughs> yeah. move it's it's not like oh nice to meet you oh, i'm sorry i don't yeah you're Hope certainly you have left better with... times <laughs> you're certainly left with the vibe that this this guy is capable of that right he called like... everyone clowns and he wanted to run for election you know and you know like as as a father i get the you know don't come near my son again kind of thing but i'm not sure i'd ever put it the way he did, like, touch my son again, I'll expletive kill you. Um, mm. You know, that's not something a level-headed person would say to someone he just met, regardless of the circumstances, I think. He's the closest thing to a villain, right? Society is the villain, Tom. Society. But who else embodies it more than Thomas Wayne? Yes, because he's supposed True. to be leading society, mm -hmm. governing the way of God. He, he's certainly the the oppressor into to society's mm -hmm. um, you know rebellion, if you want to call it that. Mm. He definitely plays like a father figure to many aspects, to many parts of the movie. Bruce, uh, Arthur, and the city itself, in, mm -hmm. in, in wanting to become a mayor. So he does carry a big load there. And I, I think one thing I had that Kevin said, I think, kind of summarizes the movie perfectly: is ninety percent sure, ten percent not sure um, because I feel like unlike a movie like Inception where I feel like there is a correct answer and you have to solve the puzzle to get there is it this still one spinning? is more like is it still spinning or is it going to fall over <laughs> it, it falls over um, <laughs> that is the correct answer uh, it's all in the wedding ring anyways um, it's it's uh, this one I don't think has a correct answer uh, it's just how you interpret it. That's the way it is and, and, and go with it. Um, but you're, but you're always going to be like, but, but what's the answer? You just don't know, you know, and, and, and we'll never know. So I think that like uneasiness, that 10% that causes you to be like, ah, not quite settled in. That's kind of the fun of it. Um, and, and same thing to the father. Well, the whole purpose of this movie is to make you feel uneasy, right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. You're yeah, not supposed sure. you're not you're supposed to feel uneasy the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> This isn't the feel good movie of the year, mm -hmm. you know. And I think, I think, like you said, it, it embodies the whole movie because at the same time, you think, I know that this is in his head. At least I'm pretty sure. 
Right. Um, but yeah, there's there's this. I I think I know where the line between his his mind and reality is, but I'm not entirely sure, and I don't think I'll ever be entirely sure. And that's exactly. That's 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 a, a Tom. You'll probably disagree with me, but I think that's a that's a well laid plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the fun. I mean, Joker. He probably doesn't even know either. I'm not after this podcast. I'm not even sure he killed those three guys, or he was just taking advantage, or he was taking advantage of the situation. I'm not even sure if I saw this movie or if it was all in my head. <laughs> when does this podcast even start? I'm, am I asleep? Uh, you know, I, I don't I'm know. Not, I'm not sure those guys were actually being jerks. I think he killed them. Yeah. Think, <laughs> yeah. Like they might have just been, you know, they, were, it up on they a train. were offering yeah. a lady fries. <laughs> she looked hungry and he was concerned. I mean, maybe they were maybe they were joking, like obviously joking, like, hey, lady, yeah. you want a fry? Like, of course she's gonna say no, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and and he took that as like a, oh no, they're being serious and they're such terrible people. And I, you know, things escalate from there. Yeah, I think there's supposed to be pieces of crap <laughs> they throw yeah, the fries sure. at the yeah, yeah, yeah i did call them finance bros you know yeah <laughs> again i'm 90 percent sure they're pieces of crap exactly but are they yeah, yeah I, regardless of if it's in his mind or not i think there is something interesting about fatherlessness right it's a movie that ends with everybody not having a father you know true. um they have the populists have a leader but like now both bruce and arthur don't have a father. The arc of development is that Arthur loses any chance of having a, a heritage and Bruce loses his parents and the city loses, you know, a, a, yeah. a governor. future mayor. Yeah. Or mayor, whatever, yeah. Potential mayor, whatever it is, yeah. I th- I think it's, I think there's also something to be said for there being a, a blurry line between bad father and mm-hmm. absent father, right? Like, because... Mm-hmm. Because uh, Thomas is there, he's he's doing the father figure role, but he's mm-hmm. all the worst parts about the father figure role. Mm-hmm. And then and then he's gone, and I guess it doesn't really matter at that point. But <laughs> uh, I think it's I think it's worth mentioning that like, yeah, there are some father figures in here, and they're all bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Murray would be the other yeah. one, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And mm-hmm. and he's he seems pretty great until he meets him, and then he's kind of a jerk too yeah yeah he, he even says i wish i had a kid just like you in that fantasy in the fantasy yeah yeah, yeah, for yeah. Sure. i mean that's definitely a father figure yeah and so it, it ends with father figures being executed which is <laughs> which is kind of a great way to think about rebellion right what else is rebellion yeah. other than executing a social father figure it's 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 the freudian oedipus drive writ large well what is what is worse a a bad father that you deal with or uh, an, an ex-father that's not around anymore. I, you know, I think, I think Arthur would say an ex-father would be, would be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least yeah. you can kill it. <laughs> at least you can kill <laughs> At least you could get There's revenge. I'd like to once again, congratulate our winner of the week, Tom, who took it in bonus round. Yeah. Yeah, everybody celebrate me. <laughs> celebrate me, you punks. <laughs> he went from losing to winning. Yeah. <laughs> Tragedy to comedy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> for me, not for you, sir. <laughs>
You can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios, and our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We're extremely grateful to all those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. Do you think the joke was funny? Why or why not? Let us know on Twitter, TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com, or give us a call at 201-467-8679. Thanks again, Ragnar and Kevin, for joining us today. It's been a great time. I'm always happy to be a part of this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always fun. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. There's there's another podcast we do. And yeah, thank you. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time when we start our Movies That Define a Director Block with Tom's recommendation from Japan in 1954, Sancho the Bailiff by director Kenji Mizuguchi. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Hey. Next week, we'll be discussing Sancho the Bailiff. Tom, how was your watch? It was good. Thanks. I, um, this is my first Mizuguchi. Uh, Mizuguchi. I wanted to watch a, a Japanese inspiration for Kurosawa because we've seen every Kurosawa movie. I wanted to go back further and see what, was, what he was watching that inspired him. And this is listed as one of those those great films. And I really liked it. It is a very obviously heartbreaking, very sad movie. I think the thing that I was most surprised was by the, the camera movement and the way the different people were moving as the camera was moving with them. It looked really gorgeous. I mean, the, the camera stuff is is quite incredible. I think that was the, the biggest thing I took away from it besides the 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 plot and what have you was just how intricate the the movement of the people and the camera itself was um and i guess maybe the other thing was learning about the history of actually this story that uh that this is based on how kind of like fun kind of oral tradition stuff is and you know where this story came from and how it evolved was also cool though that's that's extra textual that has nothing necessarily to do with the film itself Pat, how was your viewing? So I knew I knew absolutely nothing about this movie um, when I sort of signed up for it. I just saw the year and went, eh, that looks like a good film. I didn't even know it was in Japanese when I signed up for it. Um, so I was I did not know what I was getting myself in for. Um, and I want I watched it uh, very early this morning at five a.m. So it was uh, it was quite a it's quite a movie to wake up to wake up and watch. Makes for a makes for a great day. Maybe go um, back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I did not. Uh, the, 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 the boys were up before I could, uh, before I, before I could go back to sleep. But anyway, it, it, it is, um, it's a very beautiful film. I was, I was stuck because I was sort of looking at it even from like a historical perspective, because what interested me is that, because originally I thought at least the way it opened, I thought it was sort of going to be a, like a, like a, the golden days of feudal Japan and this sort of, you know, and they were going to sort of have some sort of like a peasant's revolt, you know, something like that. I thought that's what I was kind of gearing myself up for, which is very much not what it is. Um, So it interested me from a historical perspective that this movie was made relatively shortly after World War II um, and kind of trying to see how that would have affected the filmmaking. It's, It's a striking film to be made at any time, but particularly in that period of Japanese history. Um, But it was, it's a, a fantastic film. I thought very, 
as, as Tom said, it's very moving. It's very, uh, it's a, it's a powerful film. Um, KJ, what'd you think? I, I enjoyed it. I watched this on my phone. Like I, I often do. And I just want to defend that a little bit because I've gotten some snarky comments, um, from some of the guests about this the, the phone watching experience is pretty wonderful for those who haven't haven't done it get yourself a good set of headphones put on do not disturb so now the second screen that usually distracts you from movies is the movie so there's nothing to distract you and honestly your phone is probably one of the best screens you have in the house i digress um i had seen another mizoguchi film uh before this one and, and hadn't realized it um so i was a little familiar with the director but here's my advice audience and this also kind of goes against the grain of thinking usually my recommendation is to read the plot summary before you watch it i think this movie was much more enjoyable on my second watch when i knew what was coming kind of like a play or, or something in the theater it's more about seeing the events unfold than any kind of twists or turns in the movie so that's that's my i dare you audience to go know the plot before you watch this how about you nick complete opposite experience to you kj um I just treated myself to an obnoxiously large TV. And you know what? It really brings out the 1954 qualities when you watch a foreign film on a 77-inch OLED. So uh, definitely, uh, I'd recommend it. This movie, I enjoyed the story, but boy, is it a slow burn. I did not follow KJ's recommendation and read the plot summary before I started the film. So I was along for the ride. I did enjoy it, but it took a while for us to get there. And that's all I'll say now. I'll save the rest for the episode.